And I'll be frank with you, and a lot of social media people will be pissed if I said this, but if, if you are banking on the fact that Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or whatever, are going to drive you know, 40, 50% of your revenue in the next four or five years, um, you're, you're sunk. You just stop. You're, you're not going to do very well. Um, those pieces are important pieces of your overall marketing puzzle. But if you're not also using uh, paid uh, social media, paid online, traditional advertising, public relations, email marketing, marketing automation, making sure your website works for you, search engine optimization. Holy crap, if you're not spending money there, just give up. Go work for somebody else. You're going to fail. From cave drawings to family histories to stories around the fire, humans crave order among chaos, connection amid isolation. So we tell stories. Our mission at the Storytellers Network is to bring the art of story to the masses. Whether you're in marketing, you're an entrepreneur, or you're developing your own personal brand, telling your story effectively can make the difference between celebrating milestones and collecting unemployment. The Storytellers Network strives to help storytellers tell their stories so you can learn from the best. Now, your host, Dan Moyle. Hey, welcome to the Storytellers Network. I am your host, Dan Moyle, and I'm so excited that you are here today. I believe in the power of story. I believe it connects us. I believe it moves the world. I believe it moves people. I believe it moves mountains. And, uh, and that's the case today with, with a gentleman that I talked to. I am so excited to, to bring this guest to you. But before I get there, a quick reminder that uh, the website has a ton of information for you, has resources to help you tell your story better, has contact information for me. Just go to the storytellersnetwork.com for all of that. And if you're new, text the uh, word storytellers to 31996 to subscribe. So listen, today's guest is a digital strategist, a keynote speaker, and a thought leader. He is co-author of two books, uh, one of which no Bullshit Social Media, The All-Business, No-Hype Guide to Social Media Marketing. He wrote back in 2011 with Eric Deckers, and I just love the title, so I had to say it. Uh, but Jason Falls, he calls it like he sees it. And Jason has been helping brands connect with, uh, with online audiences for about 25 years. He's a thought leader in the social media and digital marketing space. Falls leads digital and social strategy for Cornette, a full-service advertising agency based in Lexington, Kentucky. He is a dynamic and entertaining public speaker, and he is fantastic on the show, and I'm so excited to have him on here. In fact, he's also widely known for founding Social Media Explorer, one of the top social media marketing blogs in the world. This guy's got it all, and I'm so excited to get you to Jason. So let's get to that story. All right, so thanks for uh, th- thank you again, Jason, for taking time to uh, to chat with the Storytellers Network and bring some some great stuff to the audience, man. I, I appreciate it very much. Hey, glad to be here. I'm, I'm I'm impressed you asked. Normally, people overlook me when they talk about business because I'm too goofy, but that's fine. <laughs> and I love I love goofy, so we fit well. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm from Southern Michigan. You're from the South, so I, th- I think it just kind of ties together somehow, right? Michigan and Kentucky. It does. <laughs> so we were talking uh, before we before we hit record. Uh, I've been following you for quite a few years. You, as I said in my intro, you uh, are, are probably most widely known as as the founder of Social Media Explorer. So as a as a digital strategist, is what you call yourself now, but also as a social media expert, you know you you've been doing this for quite a while. And you've seen this world evolve. So uh, that's why I invited you on. Um, I love the expertise, but you're also, in my eyes, you're a storyteller. Do you consider yourself one as well? 
I do. Um, I, when I introduce myself to people, I, I usually say I'm a writer, you know, by craft. Um, and then, you know, a, or a writer by, by, by trade, I guess, or what do I say, a writer by trade? Yes. I say a, a writer by craft and then a PR guy by trade. That's what I learned to do and how I became more of a writer. But, uh, you know, in the evolution to, to digital marketing and because uh, I started in PR and kind of branched out from there, PR and journalism, it's all the same thing, though. It's all storytelling. It's all creating content and bringing a narrative along that takes your audience from point A to point B, whether that, you know, audience is someone who uh, is a customer of a brand that you're writing for, you know, reading information about a product or service, or whether it's telling more of a sort of an ethereal story that, that kind of gets them inspired to think differently about something that might eventually lead them to a product. But it's also, you know, if you're writing fiction, it's the same thing. You're telling a narrative and trying to you know, urge this audience along and persuade them to keep turning that page. And so that's kind of what we're doing in the digital space now with brands. Yeah. And, and is that still powerful today, even though, you know, people like, like Mark Schaefer say we're in this rebellion where the customer doesn't care. You know, we, we just had the Super Bowl where these great big ads come out and people are already bashing them saying they were terrible. Like, are we just an echo chamber or is this actually still working? Well, I think it, it. I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I think there's there's always been an echo chamber to a degree. Um, it's more amplified now because there's a much bigger space for there to be echoes in. <laughs> um, but uh, but I do think it's still effective. I mean, you you we still have relationships with brands. We may not think of it as relationships. We may not think of it as well. This brand speaks to me. They're my friend. We we may not think of it in that uh, sort of uh, you know anthropomorphic way, if you will. Um, but we still have a relationship with brands. We still want information from them. We still rely upon them to, to teach us things. Um, and so, you know, whether it is uh, overt branded content, an advertising message, or whether it's just a useful blog post that you happen to find that, oh my goodness, this is on the, the website of a company that might sell me something one day. Um, it's still there. It's still useful. It's just a matter of having uh, your brand or your business connect to your audience or your prospective audience in a way that's relevant for them and for the audience so that they build that trust. They do start to think of you as a trusted resource. And those are the, the companies we like to do business with. They're the companies that we, we think, hey, you know, I, I trust these guys, whether it's because you know a person at that company or whether it's because you see their content frequently and you like it, um, it, it builds that trust and that eventually leads to you converting to become a customer. And you think that connection, that trust, do you see that coming a lot from story? Is that what kind of drives that? You know, I think it's one thing that can drive it. I don't think it's the only thing. Um, I, you know, I think obviously there are plenty of people out there who the trust from a brand comes from the fact that they are the cheapest uh, product in that category and they're on a budget. There are, are people that drive trust in a brand because they're involved in their community um, and they don't necessarily do anything online in terms of content or storytelling, but they give to, you know, big brothers, big sisters. And that's a thing that's, that's important to them. And then there are other brands uh, and other customers out there who think, um, you know, I really enjoy uh, reading the Jay Peterman catalog. I really enjoy, um, <laughs> you know, the videos that uh, Toyota posts online or that Ford posts online with their racing teams. I really enjoy you know, the content that I get, uh, you know, from, from influencers that are involved with the brands that I like. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a high school principal here in Lexington, Kentucky, um, who 
uh, ha, you know, has carved out over a million followers on the various social networks. Um, and he started out doing videos uh, in the, uh, the school uh, before anybody came to, or on snow days, or before, uh, you know, teachers came into work, and he did these little clever, fun videos about, here's what principals do when, when nobody's at the school, and it evolved into the school board made him, you know, you can't record those uh, in the school building if you're going to make money off of them, so he, now he, he records them in the front seat of his car with a dashboard cam before he goes into the building, which is hysterical, um, but He's built up this huge audience online, and um, the reason I bring him up is back in August when we were in back to school time, Michael's smart reached out to him and said we'd like to do a partnership, and he had some sponsored posts from Michael saying, "Hey, this is where you know I get great deals on back to school supplies, and I recommend mm -hmm. it." And so it's a paid endorsement. It was an obvious paid endorsement, but his audience loves him so much that they're going to uh, the trust that they have in him is going to bleed over onto Michael's because he said, hey, these, this is a company that I trust. So those stories mm. um, can bridge that gap, but it's not the only thing that bridges that gap. Sure. Do you think the school got it wrong and tell him he couldn't do that? Well, yeah, because, I mean, bureaucracy, and you know, it's, it's all bullshit. But, right, right. Um, but, but at the same time, what's really funny and ironic about it is like later, like a couple of months later, the superintendent of the school system did a video with him in his car in the parking lot because they couldn't record <laughs> it. Really, I mean, it's, they, they've had a good sense of humor about it. They haven't prevented him from doing it, yeah. uh, which I think is good because that's what would have happened 10 years ago. They would have said, you can't do this. You can't make money because you're a principal. Um, and so now they're like, well, you shouldn't monetize your time on, you know, on school property on the grounds. And that's probably just a good system-wide policy for, you know, uh, not just online influencers, but, you know, teachers doing other things with their work time. So I guess I understand it, but I, I'm pretty much anti-bureaucracy anyway. So yeah. yeah, I think they screwed that up. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me like putting, putting that, that influence to work could bring in other students. It could bring in, you know, grants or whatever. I mean, it, it can be such a positive thing in, in general. And I think that's, what's interesting about, for me anyway, what's interesting about social media and about web, about web traffic in general and this digital sphere that we're in, gosh, you know, we can all, I say we can all, not everybody, but we can all be influencers and we can put that to use for organizations. So yeah. it's interesting. Well, and, and we're all influencers to a degree. I mean, even those of us who don't necessarily publish online, you know, back when, when Eric Deckers and I wrote our first book together, uh, which is several years old now, one of the things we, we talked about in there was uh, word of mouth and influence. And his wife, Tony, uh, at the time was not uh, an online influencer. She didn't have a big audience. Uh, but the, she bought a certain type of car. I don't remember exactly which one it was now, but she bought a certain type of car and influenced um, her parents and like her brother and a neighbor or something to buy the same type of car. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it, you don't have to have a huge audience to be an influencer. You just have to be trusted. And so I think that's something that gets lost in all this influencer marketing talk is, uh, and you, you're starting to hear people talk more about micro-influencers and how important they are. Um, but I think that's something that does get lost in these conversations. Influence is not necessarily a big audience. It's just that trust that you built with whomever it is uh, that you have as an audience, whether it's just your family at the dinner table or it's, you know, a million people online because you do clever videos on YouTube. 
Right. Well, and, and it, to me, you know, like, so I, I love to be on Quora and answer questions. I don't, I don't know if anybody ever reads them or cares, but I love doing it. And one <laughs> of the questions I see keep coming up is about influencer marketing. And I keep saying, no, that's, that's bullshit to use your word, right? It, it's not influencer market. It's word of mouth marketing. We can all be influencers by the word of mouth that we use this kind of stuff. And certainly word of mouth can be digital, right. but I, I don't even think that the millennials or post millennial generation, when, when we're young, we care about the celebrity that has the whatever that we want. Right. right. But I don't think it's generation. I don't think it's a generational thing. I think it's just an age thing. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that we pour into those word of mouth type marketers, I mean, you know, Jay Bear and Daniel Lemon call it talk triggers. Uh, it's a word of mouth marketing. It's all these things. I mean, it's yeah. Anyway, so that's a, that's a tangent, but I mean, yes. I mean, that's, that's what I see. But it's a good tangent and, and you're right. And, and I've actually tried to kind of, um, crystallize this a little bit because when you, you know, Jay and Daniel in their book actually don't really talk about influencer marketing all that much. Right. Mentioned once or twice, but it's not a, a deep dive, which I found a little peculiar because in my mind, influencer marketing is uh, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that you can actually start the fire the spark that becomes word of mouth marketing. Because you do, if you have uh, a talk trigger, if you have great content or a great product or some something that's going to make people talk about you. You need someone to turn around and tell the first person. Well, would you rather start with one person who can tell it to three people or one person who can tell it to 3,000 people or one person who can tell it to 30,000 people? So influencer marketing, in my mind, is the, the spark that you put down on the wick that starts the fire burning that leads to all of the you know, fireworks going off for your brand. Um, and if you write, if you like three or four wicks at the same time, you can, you can have that faster. Now, obviously it all goes back to whether it's the talk trigger or whether it's your product or service, whatever it is, you still have to have a good product or service. You still have to have all of those things in a row. Otherwise the buzz about you is going to be about the clever thing you did. It's going to be short lived and nobody's going to remember your brand or buy your product. Mm-hmm. Just like the Super Bowl ads. Those are talk triggers. Those are our influencer marketing instigators. Um, but if you if you remember back last night, there were a couple of commercials that were really funny, but can you remember what brand they were for? Those are the ones who didn't do a great job of lighting that fire that leads to ultimate success. The ones that you remember, you're like, oh, that was funny. It got me thinking. It made me tell people about the commercial. It might then lead them to be curious about that particular brand. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I like the idea of the, the micro influencer, not just like the, I had to buy a Cardi B, <laughs> right? Like anyway. Um, so I, man, we, I, I just, this, I'm like throwing out the questions, just they're gone. Cause this is a great conversation. Cool. Um, so again, when we were talking offline, we talked a little bit about those early days of, of like the social media and, and marketing and, and how it came together and how it kind of likens to podcasting now. But I, I want to go back to those early days for you. I mean, what was that like back in 2000? 11 when you wrote that book which by the way no bullshit social media love the title um but uh what was that like back in those early days for you when you, when you founded you know uh social media explorer when you wrote that book it had to be a pretty electric i had to believe time you know it was fun and i don't i don't know that that any of us really had a conscious awareness that we were doing anything other than just talking about getting together and talking about marketing at conferences um, but as each of us, Jay Bear and, um, you know, Mark Schaefer and, uh, Amber Naslin and 
Tom Webster and Tamson Webster and a lot of the people that kind of the circles that I ran in back then, as we all started to develop pretty nice followings online and became quote unquote influencers, at least within this world of social media, digital marketing. Um, I think, you know, I, I don't think we were, um, I don't think we believed our own hype that we were doing something miraculous or, or changing the world. I think we were just trying to be helpful uh, to, you know, businesses out there who were trying to figure out what was going on, which is really kind of the vibe that we were preaching in social media. We just wanted to be useful for folks. And we knew that ultimately that would pay dividends. And, you know, for me, it paid dividends in, you know, being recruited by a couple of companies and, and getting you know, nice professional opportunities for Jay. Uh, it paid dividends by helping him build, you know, he, he told me very early on when I first met him that he wanted to be like Seth Godin. He wanted to write books uh, and speak for a living. And now he's in the National Speakers Association Hall of Fame and he's written yeah. five, six, seven books. And he's a New York Times bestselling author. And, and it paved the way for him to do that. And each one of us had our own little, you know, kind of goal that we were going after or maybe a general, because I didn't really have a goal. I just kind of had a general direction. I just wanted to have fun and, you know, buy people cocktails when I, you know, had a client that would pay for it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it was fun. We were, uh, we were going to conferences a lot. We were hanging out. We were learning together. Uh, we were helping people, which gave us the warm and fuzzies. And along the way, a couple of us carved out some ideas that still hold up today as, hey, this is how to do it. Um, I had somebody uh, you know, ask me not too long ago if I, you know, felt like I was a pioneer in the social media space. I don't think any of us felt like we were pioneers. And I certainly don't because you have to remember, I was kind of in the second wave uh, of people. When I think of social media pioneers, I think of, you know, Doc Searles and the Clue Train authors. I think of, you know, Chris Hewer who founded Social Media, uh, social media Club, um, who was in the Bay Area in those early years, in the early 2000s, right after the dot-com bust. Um, you know, I think of people like Tara Hunt, Deb Schultz, and, uh, Jeremiah Alyang was, was out there um, at Hitachi at the time doing, you know, cool stuff. I think of Robert Scoble. I think of, you know, people in those you know, tech sectors um, who were there years before me. I think my group was me, Jay, Amber, that group. I think we were kind of in the second wave of people that came to it, but we were the ones who took the pioneer theories and turned around and applied them to marketing agencies, brands, businesses in a much more, I think, um, relevant on the ground tactical way. Um, and I think that helped a lot of people. And I think it still is helping a lot of people, although there's still plenty of businesses out there that aren't using it. So uh, it's been fun. Um, and, and it was, you know, for a, for a dumb guy from Eastern Kentucky who just wanted to stand up on stage and have a lot of people think he was smart or funny or both. Uh, it was, it was a good run. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that stage is awesome. I know you've been at, you know, inbound and you've been at all these other events, content marketing world and stuff. And so you've, you've made it to that stage and it's, it's fun. I've, I've been there. I love it. Um, hey, I, you, I ain't pulling Jay Bear money though, you know, <laughs> I don't think any of us are. <laughs> um, so, uh, what I hear you say, Jason, and all, and, and all of that is community. Mm -hmm. You surrounded yourself with a bunch of people that you wanted to hang out with, that you guys were doing kind of similar work, that you encouraged each other maybe. Yep. Do you think that's important for storytellers, wherever they are in their journey, to have that group around them? I definitely do um, for, for two primary reasons. Uh, one, um, that's where you get your stories. I mean, that's where, you know, when you're sitting around – 
at least in the marketing world, or, or, or if you're a lawyer or if you're, um, you know, an insurance agent or whatever, you know, when you're sitting around talking to like-minded people in your industry about your business, that's where you're going to get ideas that are going to lead you to a breakthrough with a client or your business. That's where you're going to get, you know, good backstory that you can use to convince, you know, a future client to, to you know, take a, a little bit of a risk and do something a little different. Um, and that's where you're going to kind of develop uh, the, the, the ideas that you want to share to help other people. I, I, I can't, I can't think of something right off the top of my head, but I know that I can look back at people like Brian Solis and, uh, and David Beerman Scott and, you know, some of the, the, the people who came just before me. And I was at first kind of in awe to be around them. But when I really got to know them and realized that, you know, they're really smart folks, but I'm, I'm holding my own here. I'm not actually a dumb guy. Um, I say I am, but I can kind of keep up here. Um, they, those conversations and the relationships that I built with that community of people in the industry, um, helped me solidify my confidence that I knew what I was doing and helped me crystallize some of the ideas that I had because I would bounce things off of Mark Schaefer and Tom Webster and Jay Bayer and Amber Naslin and whatnot. And they would say, well, I, you know, I like that idea, but you're missing this or you haven't thought of that. And so those conversations over a drink after, you know, a day at a conference, um, you know, certainly inspired a lot of the thinking that, that went into my, my, uh, my books uh, and the advice that I give my clients. And so uh, that's the first phase of it. But the second phase of it is when you have, when you're a member of a community, that is what gives you, um, I think, your audience, right? I mean, because if I didn't have the social media digital marketing community out there, I wouldn't have anybody to tell stories too. Now, I can certainly you know, be the storyteller for the brands that I work with, and that would be a good outlet for me. But in terms of my own professional development and my own personal satisfaction, I need that community to, to be able to share with and, and tell those stories too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm finding in a lot of arenas that community is just so important. So it's interesting to hear, hear you put it that way. I love it, man. It's yeah. the, that's the whole reason social media exists is because it's, it's people searching for like-minded people to share ideas with. That's how it all emerged in the first place. Yeah. Um, and if you really think about it, you know, the traditional media that uh, in general people were running away from uh, when social media emerged, um, they were looking for, okay, where am I going to get my information? Where am I going to spend my time? And it was with people who think like me. And that's, there's a danger there in homogenization of, of the information that you process every day. Um, you can have a very narrow worldview if you only surround yourself with people who think just like you. Yeah. That's kind of what we gravitate to online. And then I think that's why it's, it's important to have the discussions too, because you, that homogeny is very easy to slip into, but if we're cognizant of it, we can fight it and we can surround ourselves with, with people who are different than us yep. with respect. Right. And also read those, those publications have different outlooks than we do. Um, it's just, it's so important. And, and I think, I mean, I, like I love the idea that, that social media really shines when you take it offline and make it truly social. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, there, and I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, my best stories are told uh, with a drink in my hand, propping at the bar. Yeah. Right. I'm a bar guy. That's, I like to have a cocktail and, and, and laugh. That's those, that's my environment. And so you can't do that on Facebook can't do that in a chat room. You've got to do that in person. And those are the, the much more um, 
empowering, much more uh, satisfying uh, areas where not, I not only tell stories but also hear stories, um, and that's one of that's one of the reasons why uh, going to conferences for me was always very important, and still is. I still go. I don't travel quite as much as I used to, but I still like to go because I need that face time with that community of friends uh, because it, it helps fuel me. And yeah. that's, that's an important thing. And how do you think businesses today can take that idea of the tavern storyteller and use it? Can, can we as professionals use that in some way other than the tavern? Well, sure. Everybody's more amusing when they've had a cocktail or two, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. I think, I think, I think so. And, and, and here's why the, now, obviously, there's different types of the tavern storytellers, right? There's the, the, the lush who's had too much to drink and is loud and obnoxious. That's not what you want to be. Unfortunately, that's what brands normally are. They're the ones who march in the door with their megaphone screaming, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. Let me tell you about my, my dad. Let me tell you about my story. You know, they're slobbering all over themselves because <laughs> they think they're the most important thing in the world. Um, so that's not what you want to be. So that's a nice little analogy. What you want to be is you want to be another, uh, just another person sitting at the table, another person lined up around the circle, around the bar. Um, and you get to listen to a lot of wonderful stories from the community that you're a part of, but then eventually you get permission to tell one too. And so I've always told people the best analogy I can think of for a business uh, understanding what social media really is, is if you walk into a bar or you walk into a networking event, a business networking event, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a, a chamber of commerce networking thing or something and there's a bunch of people there. So you've got these circles of people, these little micro communities around the room. And what you do if you walk into one of those events and you don't know anyone is you kind of walk around the room and you listen to hear what people are talking about. And then when you catch someone talking about something that you are interested in or that you know you can speak to, you kind of gravitate to that circle. And eventually that circle will recognize you and they'll widen the circle and welcome you in. And at some point when the conversation stops, they'll turn and say and look at you and give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Not an opportunity to sell your crap, not an opportunity to pass out business cards, just an opportunity to say, hey, I'm Jason. I work over at Cornette. And, uh, I'm new here. So what does everybody do, right? Turn it back on them. Let them talk. And then you learn, right? You start to yes. assimilate into that community. And when you assimilate in that, into that community and you just kind of be patient and let everybody get to know you and you get to know them, then it's going to come time when someone's going to go, hey, Jason, what do you, you said you work at Cornette. What is Cornette? What do you guys do, right? Eventually, you're going to get permission. You're going to get permission to talk. You're going to get permission to sell, but you got to kind of, you got to nurture it along. And if you think of social media marketing like that, I'm going to have a Facebook brand page, but I'm not going to sell my stuff. I'm just going to bounce around Facebook and see what other people are talking about. I'm going to share some other people's content that's interesting to my audience. I might develop some content that's also very helpful and useful to them and kind of wait to see what people start talking to me about before I take my next step. That's a really good way to kind of ease into it. Of course, businesses are always like, well, I'm spending money. I need a return by the end of the quarter. So yeah. I can't do it that slow. But if you don't do it that slow, then you're eventually going to be dissatisfied with the results. Well, and I think it goes back to, you know, just like, just like influencer marketing, 
back in the days when you had only a small town, you went to the same mechanic, but if a new mechanic came in, they had to take their time. They couldn't do it in a month or a quarter or a year. They had to build that. And so it's the same kind of thing with social media, I think anyway. Um, so you, you mentioned create versus curate. Um, you know, very, you know, honestly, for a while, I, I hated the word content curation. And I thought anybody who's curating just isn't original. I've come to realize over the years that that's not true at all. <laughs> and that you can't only create, you have to be able to share. Is So as you're talking digital strategy with businesses, with your clients, do you talk about creation versus curation and how that balances? I do sometimes. It depends on the client. It depends on what they're trying to do. Um, you know, I'm not going to curate content on Instagram you know, because that's where you're trying to paint you know, a visual portrait of your brand and your business, what you're all about. Um, so I've told people, you know, we're not going to share content on Instagram. We're going to participate in conversations. We're going to like other people's posts. We're going to comment on their posts. We're going to be a member of the community. But people on Instagram who repost other people's stuff, um, I think have this vibe of, well, I'm not original. I'm just going to share what somebody else shared. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to see that, I'd go follow them. I don't need to follow you for that, right? It doesn't work the same way on Facebook. It doesn't work the same way on Twitter. In fact, Twitter is obviously the network where I have my biggest following. And it's because in 2007, when I joined, I decided I'm going to build an audience here. And I'm going to build an audience of people who trust me for really good advice on digital social media marketing, PR, advertising. And I'm going to do that by creating really good content that's helpful and useful for them. But I can't create more than maybe one blog post or idea a day. And that's if I'm really lucky. So I've got to go out and just be a good curator for them and say, hey, Jay Bear wrote this. You know, hey, uh, uh, Mark Story wrote this over here. Hey, here's, you know, somebody else who did something cool. Um, you know, Liz Strauss has got some great ideas on her blog post today. You should check that out. And so instead of having people in my audience have to come to the internet and go bouncing all around trying to find useful information, I just fed it to them. And I did that very consistently for quite a long time. I still do it, not as often as I used to, uh, but my business and my goals for what I use social media for have changed a little bit over the years. Um, but I'm still, I still just try to be useful. I still try to share content um, and, and especially stuff that I find that's helpful for and that's how I built my network. And that's the only way I built my network. I never tried to game the system or go out and buy followers or anything like that. And that's why when these, you know, top influencers in social media and all that stuff, all those lists come out, which, you know, those are a dime a dozen and, and half, you know, I don't know, six to one half dozen. Either. They're not all that impressive normally. But when they do come out, I'm normally on that list, especially if they do some sort of algorithmic ranking of people, because I have a lot of followers, but they're all genuine. They're not fake. They're not from a contest. They're not from a promotion. They're not because some celebrity mentioned me. It's just because I've done a good job of building a trust network over the years. Um, and so when people say, why do people trust you online? It's because I'm trustworthy because I, I don't abuse their attention. And that's why. Helpful and community. That keeps coming up, man. And I, and I, and I love that. I'm a big proponent of that. I, I remember back in, 2008 when I joined Twitter and I was a producer of a newscast, local top 40 market newscast, morning news. And, and I loved being able to share stories and behind the scenes stuff and, and photos of the producing booth. And, you know, here's your, your anchors behind the scenes. And, and I remember getting in trouble actually 
because I was tweeting at night when I should have been working and the boss didn't understand it. I'm like you sent 70 tweets or whatever it was. And I was like, that's like half a second a piece and I'm developing an audience and now they are required to be on, yeah. <laughs> which is almost, almost worse. Like <laughs> if you have anything to say, don't be on there. But anyway, it's so it's fun to think back on those days though, man, isn't it? It is. It is. Now, now what do you see is, so when we think back to those days, what do you see is that is in that uh, phase right now when it comes to all of this stuff? Is it something to do a new social media platform? Is it a new way of doing things? Is it video? Is it audio? What's in that kind of early stages right now, do you think? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that are, that are, I don't know that I would say they're all in early stages. I think they're just all being um, reapplied or understood in better ways. Like we've had video for a long time. We've had podcasts for a hell of a long time. But now people are starting to see, wow, if you do it right, it can be really useful and you can attract an audience that way. And brands are starting to say, hey, you know, I can't afford to go out here and, and buy an ad on Howard Stern, uh, but I can probably afford to go out here and do something on the uh, on Meat Eater TV or, or something on, you know, some other uh, podcast. Like we have a lot of spirits and bourbon brands that we work with here at Cornette. And a lot of our, uh, our partnerships now, instead of going out and buying ads, are, hey, let's take a, a smaller budget and see if we can't engage a bunch of influencers and podcasters uh, to do some really cool content partnerships with them where we're not, we're not throwing out an ad, but we're um, you know, sending them some product and saying, hey, what we'd like to do instead of just doing a 30-second reader is we'd like for you to try the product while you're on the air and talk about it because that's way more genuine and way more engaging. Uh, for the audience and which they like and for them, which they like and for us, which we like. So it, it's a win, win, win. So I think it's, it's less about new things emerging and more about figuring out how to use what we have. Now that said, there's always going to be some new platform or some new, uh, I guess, trend on where strategy is going. Right now, I think strategy uh, is moving away from a little bit away from, not totally away from, a little bit away from the, the purest version of social media where, uh, as we were talking earlier, it's all about community and trust. Let's just hire a bunch of community managers who will have fun conversations with our customers. As businesses, the, the larger the business, the more insistent they become on, we have to be able to connect and prove value in this investment. And I'll be frank with you, and a lot of social media people will be pissed if I said this, but if if you are banking on the fact that Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn or whatever are going to drive, you know, 40, 50% of your revenue in the next four or five years, um, you're, you're sunk. You just stop. You're, you're not going to do very well. Um, those pieces are important pieces of your overall marketing puzzle. But if you're not also using uh, paid uh, social media, paid online, traditional advertising, public relations, email marketing, marketing automation, making sure your website works for you, search engine optimization. Holy crap, if you're not spending money there, just give up, go work for somebody else, you're gonna fail, right? So there's so many different components of making your marketing work. Social media is an important part of it, but the bigger the business these days, the more they're saying, look, I'm happy to invest in social, but you've gotta show me that it can work. And you've got to measure it so that I understand how it ladders up to my overall business. So 
what we try to do when we're pitching a new client or when we're working through uh, measurement and re reports and whatnot with our current clients is we need to say, look, the goal is what we're going to start with. We, we have to understand the goal. If the goal is to drive website traffic, then that's what we're going to measure. If you come back to me with what's the ROI, I'm going to say the ROI is 25% jump in uh, website visitors. Now, if I'm smart, which I am, or at least I think I am, I say, look, the goal is website visitors, but what happens to them when they get there? Let's also, in addition to social media, let's go a step further and tweak your uh, user experience and your user flow and the marketing automation components on your website so that when they get to the website, we ask them to do something. We take them down a path. We take them on a journey. We convert them into an email subscriber, a first-time customer, a, a multiple-time customer, loyal customer. What are we doing with them when they're there? Just using social media to get people to the website is not enough. You've got to be able to also then say, hey, this many people came from Facebook and this percentage of that many people bought something from you or signed up for a seminar or became a qualified lead or however you're going to measure that. And then when you get to that point, you can start to trace an ROI back and say, this much revenue came from Facebook, this much revenue came from Twitter, this much revenue came from email, this much revenue came from wherever else. So that's really the business trend right now is, okay, social media has been around long enough for us all to get it and understand it and understand how it works. Now you got to start proving that it does work and show us what the dollars are. And so that's where we are uh, on the branding side of things. In terms of social networks and stuff, yeah, there's always going to be something that pops up. My daughter got me on TikTok a couple of weeks ago. Well. So um, I've been calling it Tic Tac just to be funny. <laughs> uh, it's formerly musically. And, you know, being, being now being in my forties and, and having kids who are tweens and teens, I look at the social networks that they're on and I'm like, what, the, what are these people doing? This is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, if I had to sum up TikTok to most people, I would say it's basically you get to watch people lip sync all the time. Yeah. Which is stupid. Why would you do that? But when you think back, you know, you think back about Twitter, you know, 10 years ago, older people were saying, you're just like sending text messages with like everybody about whatever. That's stupid, right? So yeah, about what it, you had for breakfast. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> eventually, TikTok's gonna be a big deal. It is a big deal. There are half a million, uh, half a billion rather, uh, uh, users already mm. on this network because they've merged you know, a couple of, of services. So it's relevant, and we've got to start paying attention to that too, seeing how we can engage people there. So what is, so this is interesting because I, I have daughters probably about the same age. Uh, they're turning 13 and 14 this year. Ooh. And yeah. Uh, so when you talk about bourbon and whiskey, we're going to have to have that discussion too. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> but you know, they're, they're in that age too. And we, my, my wife and I have made a commitment that they aren't on social media. We don't want them to have access to it right now because there's just so much out there and, and not that we want to shelter them. So they're, so they, they like go crazy someday, but we just, we just don't want to do that. Do you see a seedy side to all of this? Is there a danger out there that we need to be aware of as parents? Oh, sure. Um, but I, but I, I've always um, told my kids and other people who ask my opinion about it, and I've talked to the folks who were talking about the dangers of the internet and social media to my kids at their school. I've said, look, you can, I, the only thing I don't want us to do is blame social media. Right? Sure. Sure. If, if your kids are, are up to no good on social media. It's not Facebook's fault. It's not Twitter's fault. Uh, it's probably because 
there wasn't a level of openness, communication, and, and honesty between you and the kids. Um, and I, that might sting some people to hear that, but we can't blame everything on, oh, the, the internet is full of awful people and the, the Facebooks and Twitters are terrible, because they're not. If you use them the right way, if you use them in a smart way, if you're educated about how to protect yourself uh, and, and use them responsibly, they can, they can anchor an entire career, like my, in my whole career, the last you know, 10, 12 years is based on understanding and using social networks. So we have to understand that just like talking about going to the shopping mall or going to the movie theater or going to a concert in Las Vegas, where, you know what, there might be someone who hangs a rifle out a window and shoots the crowd. Yeah. You've got to be able to just talk to your kids about the dangers of the world. Social media is another place where those dangers can happen. So let's talk to them about being smart. Let's talk to them about protecting their privacy, understanding when they put something out there that's public, it doesn't just have an impact now. It could have an impact 10 years from now. I mean, talk to the governor of Virginia about that, about no what happens when somebody on the Internet gets a hold of some pictures from a while back. Well, yep. this generation, our daughter's generation, is going to be people who every picture they've ever taken is primarily published online, which is way different than us, right? Mm -hmm. There's plenty of pictures from when I was in high school that, God forbid, they're ever put on the internet. I'm done. Yep. Right? Um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I think it's really just about having that conversation, being smart, being educated about it. I... Um, have I'm much more open and much more liberal with uh, my management of my kids and their social media for a couple reasons. Um, I talk uh, a lot with my ex-wife, with their mother about it, um, and we make decisions together still uh, because we have to, you know, co-parent. This isn't a one versus the other. Um, she's much more conservative than I am. She would never let all this personal stuff out on the internet, but my daughter loves it. She loves the TikToks. She loves watching the YouTube videos. Um, she wanted to do her own YouTube channel. And so I'm like, you know, this is a step toward educating her on not only how to use social media, but how to create content, how to be a brand and how to, you know, be successful. So it's like, this is an opportunity. I got a 10 year old who wants to do her own YouTube channel. Most parents are like, Oh my God, no, you can't use YouTube. And I'm like, hell yes. Put yeah. your college let's do it <laughs> exactly you know, so um but it but it requires a great deal of, of focus and concentration from parental side to routinely monitor set some rules and stuff hey anytime one one of the key rules and i got this from my late great friend david uh, uh david finch uh one of the rules we have is anytime i ask to see your phone or your computer you have to turn it over and I, I have access to everything. I know all the passwords. You can't hide anything from me. And if I find out you are hiding something from me, now the privilege goes away. Um, and when I had an incident, uh, an incident not too long ago with my son where he, you know, did something he shouldn't have done. So he got his, his browser turned off and he got his device taken away for a little while. And then when I gave him back his device, the browser was still turned off. It stayed off for a long time because he was going to some websites that he should have been going to. Um, and so he's learned and we've opened that up again and now he's using it the way he should. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of rules where we'll do spot checks. We'll always check if you're on a social network, I have, you have to follow me and I have to be able to follow you. I have to be able to see all your stuff and I can spot check and log into any of your accounts at any time and check things. 
and I do it. I don't just trust that they're going to be good about it. I actually do about once every two weeks. I'll log into their networks and check and see what their private messages are. The only thing that really frustrates me is Snapchat and uh, Instagram stories because they go away. That pisses me off. Yep. <laughs> but um, I also can tell from the overall usage of their social medias. And it's really only my son because my daughter, everything is through me because she's 10. My son's 13 with different. Uh, but but I, I can tell from his overall use that he's generally behaving himself. And I've even seen some messages back and forth where some of his friends will get a little, you know, on the edge of inappropriate. And he'll be like, guys, come on. You know, my dad sees this stuff. This isn't cool. We shouldn't be doing this. Mm. And so he'll bring him right back into it. So it's for us, knock on wood, it's working out. Yeah, that's leadership right there. That's good. I like that. Trying, trying to establish that. And, you know, I hope he's getting yeah. it. I think he is. Yeah, that sounds like it. Um, so with, with, with how incredibly noisy social media can feel, can, can storytellers nowadays still get their message out through that venue if they're just starting out? Like, like how do we do that? Well, your, your story's got to be good. Hmm. I mean, you you know, I I saw somebody today, uh, who posted on, I think it was a thread on Reddit or something where I was just skimming by and I saw a headline and the headline was, you know, something like, um, how do I get more, um, it wasn't how do I get more followers, but it was, you know, how do I, how do I, how do I earn more, you know, prestige in this particular network or whatever it was, I can't remember what it was specifically, but my response was, you got to have better content. I mean, you, you're not getting the attention that you want to get because your content probably isn't up to par. And if it's not a problem with your content, then you're probably not distributing it, putting it in front of the right people. Yeah. Um, so there's really, there's really, that's really the only two pieces of the puzzle. It's if you've got great content, then you've got a distribution problem. If you, uh, if the distribution's pretty good and you're getting stuff out there, but you're not getting a response to it, it's because the content's not any good. And that's true for individuals or brands. So um, I go back to, you know, if you, people say, you know, I, why is Apple successful? Apple is not successful because they have great marketing. They're not successful because they have great customer service, because sometimes they don't. Um, They're not successful because they have great social media. They're successful because they have great products. For the most part, the people who like Apple love Apple, and they love their products, and their products are very different from the competition. And they are successful because they serve this customer who wants a specific thing, and wants it done a specific way, and that's what they deliver. Um, and so if you think about that, if your content is so good, so insatiable, that people will stand in line for it, hmm. you don't have a problem. It doesn't matter where you distribute it. The content is going to take off no matter what. Um, and the reason I know that to be true, look at the people who are successful on the TikToks of the world. Look at the people who are successful on YouTube. You think PewDiePie... <laughs> is 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 uh I, I mean when i look at him and i think okay first of all this guy probably isn't smart enough to figure out content distribution but what he is smart enough to do is create content that people love content that people will stand in line for people will i can't wait till he releases another video even if it is making fun of him or watching it because you think he's ridiculous he still attracts an audience we, I don't know if you've heard of this guy. We've got another guy that I've worked with, not worked with, but I've talked to a couple times. 
because I can't work with him because of what he does. And Catfish Cool, he's a comedian now, but he started out doing YouTube videos. He would basically do stuff like drink an entire bottle of liquor, like beer bong, an entire bottle of liquor, and then dive off the roof of a house into a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous, dumb stuff. But people love watching those videos. Hacked mm-hmm. into something in the redneck zeitgeist of the world yep. and built an audience. And you know what? He's making a ton of money now because he's got an audience to put content in front of. I wanted to pay you money along the way, but I'm like, I can't pay you money if you're going to drink a whole bottle of liquor because it's not cool. It's not safe. Okay. And liquor companies can't be associated with that. So he said, well, I'm sorry. We just can't work together, man, because that's, that's kind of what I do. And I'm like, you're crazy. Okay. <laughs> but good on you. <laughs> good on you. Exactly. Yeah. So. Right on. Good advice, man. I appreciate it. Um, so Jason, this is fun, man. I could, uh, a guy like you I could talk to you all night. We need, I need to come down to Kentucky and have some bourbon with you. Please. Um, although although I'm, I'm a whiskey guy. Okay. So what's the difference between whiskey and bourbon? So the only difference between whiskey and bourbon, uh, it depends on what type of whiskey, but uh, bourbon is whiskey. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it is America's native spirit. So to legally be, it's, you have to have a, a couple of legal requirements to be bourbon. Uh, so just like whiskey, uh, it's made from a mash bill of different types of grains. Uh, to be bourbon, 51% at least of that has to be corn. So it's corn whiskey uh, by definition. Um, it can be anything above 51, uh, but it can't, has to be at least 51. Um, and then it has to, there's a couple of nuances of it, it has to go into the still, or um, uh, yeah, it has to come out of the still at a certain level, at, a, at, a, at least a, uh, there's a maximum uh, proof that it can come out of the still and there's a maximum proof that it can go into the barrel to age. And then it has to be aged in charred new white oak barrels. Mm. Um, and if it's charred, if it's aged in the charred new white oak barrels, so it has to be brand new wood charred on the inside. It can't be used for something else first. Um, and so, uh, when it's a, it can be aged for two months and still be bourbon. If it's aged for at least two years, it's straight bourbon. Um, and then the general rule of thumb is, is that bourbons get really good when they're between probably six and 12 years. Um, I personally think bourbons beyond 12 years get a little too woody, charry. They're a little too hot for my tastes. But there's plenty of people who think that they taste a lot better. One of the more uh, elite bourbons out there is, is Pappy Van Winkle 23-year bourbon, uh, which people pay a pretty penny to, to drink these days. And I guess technically I should disclose that Pappy Van Winkle is technically a client because the Buffalo Trace Distillery where it's made is one of our clients here. Oh, cool. Uh, but it, it's a it's a super premium with a super premium price. Um, my personal opinion, if it gets past about 12, 13 years, I'm not, I personally am not going to like it. Doesn't mean other people wouldn't. Sure, sure. Uh, so the, the it's not the longer it's aged, the better it is. There's a window of like sweet spot. Uh, but most of your good bourbons are going to be eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve year bourbons. Okay. Um, so yeah, but it's it is whiskey. That and 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 here's another one for you. And my bourbon aficionado friends will hate me for saying this. Uh, Tennessee whiskey, which is what Jack Daniels is, is also bourbon. Okay. But what they do is they take the bourbon out of the barrel and then they filter it through uh, charcoal. And so a bourbon aficionado's statement of that is, is if my bourbon was so crappy that I need to run it over rocks to make it taste better, <laughs> I just wouldn't call it bourbon. 
There you go. That's how we that's how we think about Tennessee whiskey around right. here. Right on, right on. I go I go for the Irish whiskey. I got a little Irish in me, so I just yeah. I love that stuff, man. Yeah, there's some there's some good Irish whiskey. I actually a uh, good story for a quick quick story. Sure, yeah. I, I, I worked once upon a time with uh, with Maker's Mark Bourbon, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic brand. Um, and and two things about them that are that are fun. Number one, did you know that Lafroy Scotch, which is a very good Scotch, I, it's an Isla Scotch, uh, is aged I think exclusively in Maker Maker's Mark barrels. Really, well, that's one piece of information. But Rob Samuels, who is currently the chief operating officer at Maker's Mark, he is the grandson of the guy who came up with the recipe. Mm-hmm. So Rob and I worked together for a, a, a period of time, and he did a, a trip to Ireland. Um, and Scotland and did a bunch of Scotch and Irish whiskey tours to just kind of learn more about the brands and how they do things at once upon a time. The dream. He comes back with two bottles of Bushmills. Mm-hmm. One of them was a regular bottle. One of them was kind of a really nice exclusive bottle. I don't know what the difference was. But Rob was like, you know, I don't really drink much. Do you want these? I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. I'm like, uh, yeah. So Rob Samuels once upon a time gave me two bottles of, of Bushmills. One of them was like, you know, kind of their super expensive, you know, version of it. And yeah. those, they didn't last very long by us. Yeah. Good that's stuff. awesome. That's, that's actually probably one of my favorite whiskeys is Bushmills simply because it's distilled in the district of Moyle in Northern Ireland, which there you Moyle, go. There you go. So anyway, there well, Jason, go. man, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, I want to, I want to ask you one last question. I like to end on this one just to see if I can get you. If, yeah. uh, so you define yourself as a storyteller, but if somebody said to you tomorrow, Jason, you can tell no more stories but you have one more, what would your last story be? Um, wow, that's deep. Um, I think my last story, I'd have to go back to the, I think the reason I'm here. Um, and I had a, um, my story would be about the story of my relationship with my dad, who uh, took off and left and deserted my mom and I when I was three and showed up again several years later. And we repaired our relationship and I have a great relationship with my father now you know, we've had the whole forgiveness and all that kind of stuff and all that's out of the way. But that relationship and that gap in my childhood was what really um, made me excited to be a father because I wanted to be a dad and I wanted to be a better dad uh, and, and a dad where my father wasn't to my kids. And that's the story I would tell because I really and truly feel like Grant and Katie are the reason I'm here. And my whole job in life is to prepare them to have a happy life themselves. And that's the story I would tell because I, I really and truly feel like that's why I'm here. Yeah. And, and that's what I want people to remember about me is I love my kids and I was a good dad. Wonderful one to go out on. I like it. Uh, so I'll include links in the show notes, of course, for listeners, but where's the best place to connect with you? Man, I'm Jason Falls everywhere. Uh, JasonFalls.com is the site. It's much more of a marketing kind of bin. Uh, my Instagram uh, is a bourbon channel. So I talk about bourbon and make funny jokes about bourbon there. Um, and then I just launched a new podcast called Double Barreled with my friend Jeremy Shell, uh, where we uh, prove that you can disagree without being disagreeable and use bourbon as the centerpiece of, hey, we're going to sit down and have a glass of bourbon and we're going to talk about some issue. Oh, um, we talk about the bourbon too, so it's kind of fun. Uh, but it's, it's double barreled. Uh, it's new. So it'll be a little hard to find for a little while, but it's on iTunes and Stitcher and Google play. Uh, but I'm Jason falls everywhere else, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. The, uh, the, the Facebook page is the Jason falls. And I do a Tuesday morning show where I interview people about marketing just like this. So 
yeah, come find me. I'd love to ch- chat with anybody and everybody. Absolutely. We'll put it out there. All right, man. Excellent. Man. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much, Jason Falls, for joining me on today's show. You can find Jason online at the links in the show notes, his social media, his podcast, his website, all that is in the show notes. So check that out. Uh, and if, hey, you enjoyed this episode with Jason, you learned something from it, share it with somebody that could benefit from it. I appreciate that. You can share it on social. Just tell someone, text it to them, share from your podcast app, however you get it out to folks. I very much appreciate it. And if you want to share your story with me in some way, go to the storytellersnetwork.com, go to the contact page and just hit contact Dan. Send me an email and we'll chat. All right. Appreciate you listening. Until next time, here's to telling our stories and having stories to tell. Cheers. Cheers.